The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. We're in. We're in. Uh, We have good news, which is that uh, we had a lot of listens to our new episode in the first, like, several hours. Yeah, thank you, guys. So thank you for listening. I enjoyed it. It's Uh, all downhill from here. Shout out to our friends in Seattle, where we had, like, a larger number of listeners. Um. And, and shout out to Ashburn. Shout out to Ashburn, but Wait. I, I think that that's just internet traffic. So that could be like because of another site that hosts our podcast. I'm going to continue <clears throat> to believe that it is a coven of 14-year-old girls who have been inspired. <laughs> yeah, that that's the dream. If you're in Ashburn and you're listening, um, please email us. Uh, yeah, at mysteryteamincorporated at gmail. And just like let us know what's going on in Ashburn. Yeah, or Seattle. Or anybody. Um, or anybody email us. We're lonely. <clears throat> we are. Uh, I wanted to bring up two things from the last episode, mm-hmm. which is you asked me where the, remember I, okay, in the last episode I talked about the Battle of Los Angeles and I talked about how there were reports that there was a downed enemy plane in Los Angeles and you said where and I said I don't know. Yes. So I just posted a, uh, on our Instagram today uh, a news, like a headline uh, from the air raid and it was supposedly, it was reported to be a downed plane on Vermont Avenue. Vermont and what? It didn't say. That is not nearly enough information. And then I wanted to make another note, which was my new theory about what Stonehenge is, uh, which was that it was uh, similar to the pyramids, like a monument to the dead. So it was like a burial place and that the stones represented like kings or someone important Mm -hmm. and that they were like gravestones. That's a good theory I have. And we do know that the um, Aubrey stones were originally in... Some of the gravestones. Mm-hmm. But we don't know. They were moved. We know they were moved, but nothing I remember reading said anything about, like, Like, what? royalty or whether I, it was... I, I remember reading something about perhaps royalty was buried there, but remember how I don't remember anything that happens to me? Yes. So, Kayla thinks she wants me to go first, but now she wants to know if she should go first, so what we're going to do is I'm going to tell her what my mystery is, and then she's going to decide if she should go first or I should go first, and then we'll probably cut all this out. Great. But if we don't, here it is. My mystery is the mysterious death and disappearance of Theodosia Burr Walton. Okay, go first, because I don't want to wait. Okay, great. (laughs) Oh my god, I'm... As you know. Oh, I need two seconds to just... (laughs) Like... (sighs) I got, like, my... (laughs) I'm so excited I might cry. <laughs> Dear Theodosia, someone <gasps> murdered you. No, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. It's unsolved. You know what's funny is oh. I always wondered what happened to her. And I never looked it up. And thank God I never looked it up. Because you're about to be surprised. How did you come to this? Like, did you have this on a list and you were like, today's the day? Or did no. you just like randomly think of it or what? No, I discovered it on um, that same podcast uh blind spot, historical oh. blind spot that I discovered the princess in the tower on. Oh. 
he just like does a lot of really amazing mysteries and I found this one last week when I found the Battle of Los Angeles but I decided to save it yeah. So probably a lot of you have heard of Theodosia from the musical Hamilton, or if you've done any, uh, revolutionary war type studying, then you know that Theodosia was, um, the daughter of Aaron Burr. And as you know, <laughs> I wrote Aaron Burr, lawyer, vice president, and the guy who straight up shot Alexander Hamilton. Theodosia Bartow Prevost was raised by, this is Theodosia's mother, Aaron Aaron Burr's, yeah. The original Theodosia. The original Theodosia. Um, She was raised by a single mother and married to an officer of the British Army named Jacques Marcus Prevost. The company, the company, the couple had five children, and because of her own patriotic feelings, she offered her home, the Hermitage, as a meeting place for revolutionaries, including Aaron Burr, Marquis de Lafayette, and even George Washington at one time. Can I just say that this is exactly what I would do, but only because revolutionaries are a very hot genre of dude. True. And I'd be like, do you guys want to, like, meet here? You guys can, like... You can just meet here and, like, hang out here and, like, I'll bring you some beers. Do you guys, like, want to have, like, beers with the boys at my house? Because, like, my husband is a British officer, but I'm, like, low-key super into the Revolutionary War. Oh, my God. Resist. I'm really Hashtag resist. Revolutionary dick. That's what we're going to be doing in 10 years. <laughs> I know. Listen. The when, resistance. When the resistance rises up, we're going to be having, like... <laughs> like, tea parties at our yeah. house. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, tea parties where people spill the tea on the resistance. Yes. Great. Can't wait. Um, And so, a romance between Aaron Burr and Theodosia ensued. Can't blame either of them. Uh, This is a quote. Theodosia and Burr's writings to each other covered politics, philosophy, and feminism, with the two discussing both Rousseau and British feminist Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, When her husband Jacques died, she and Aaron Burr were married in 1782. Um, And it's important to note, I didn't write this in my thing, but it's important to note also that they had... um, they married for love, which was, like, super uncommon at the time. Like, they had, like, what they called a mature, um, it was, like, a mature affection for each other, quote-unquote, in the sense that instead of, like, marrying for, like, political reasons or to, like, strengthen, you know, like, or for money or whatever, it was, like, they, she had already been married. She was nine years older than he was, and she had been married to a British officer who was, like, directly opposed to what he was doing, um, as a revolutionary... This is and so hot. They got married, like, because they actually loved each other. So, oh my god. Um, their first child and the only one to survive into adulthood, Theodosia Bartow Burr, was born in Albany, New York, on June twenty first, seventeen eighty three. She was thoroughly educated. She studied early feminists. She studied French, Greek, Latin, arithmetic, music, English composition, and dancing. Uh, her mother, Theodosia, died when she was eleven. Uh, Theodosia Burr had an incredibly close relationship with her father. The two wrote thousands of letters between back and forth. In 1801, Theodosia married Joseph Alston, a landowner from South Carolina, who later became the 44th governor of South Carolina. They were the first recorded couple to honeymoon at Niagara Falls. I love this so much. I know. Uh, in that's, a- and that's such a lame honeymoon if you're the first, <laughs> first people to, to do it. <laughs> ever honeymoon at Niagara Falls. Yeah. Oh, I just... In 1802, she gave birth to Aaron Burr Alston. No. Yeah. 
But the stop it. Hold on. She. This is not fair. <laughs> because she's not allowed to be named after her mother and then like name her, her son, son after her, her father. I know. And also in my head, it's Leslie Odom Jr. Like it's. It has to be in your brain. Yeah. That's how I'm imagining this whole story. Um. Theodosia's health was in bad condition after the birth of their son, and she suffered a uterine prolapse. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Aaron Burr Sr. was vice president at this time, up until he famously dueled with Alexander Hamilton and fucking shot him. Wait, he did what? (laughs) He dueled with Alexander Hamilton. Who was that? And he fucking shot him. Also, I learned today... That if you die in a duel, when you Google this person, instead of your cause of death being listed as, like, a gunshot wound, it lists your cause of death as duel. <laughs> Which was, like, made me really happy, because I, like, Googled I love Alexander that. Hamilton to find the date of his death, and it was, like, cause of death, duel. And I was like, oh, shit. But that's, like... That's way better than, yeah. like, gunshot wound to the face or, like, you know, whatever. No, no, no. If I go out in a duel, I, I want will. people to know that, like... It's going to be on your tombstone, like, died in a duel. But I never will because I'm not that Like, Caleb Vandebunt, 1992 to 2020, duel. Why would you say 2020? Oh, because what I'm, if you duel? Listen, <laughs> if I'm going to get into a duel, it's it going to be, be real quick. Two years. <laughs> exactly. In two years, I'll either be a handmaid. <laughs> or dueling dead from senators. A duel, <laughs> or, like, calmer. When someone asks about your five-year plan... <laughs> I'm going to be like, handmade, handmade or duel. dead in a duel, or just calmer as a person. <laughs> or chill. Chill. <laughs> Aaron Burr was charged with murder in New York and New Jersey because the U.S. was in the process of outlawing dueling. Um, but... Wait. The U.S. was in the process yes. of outlawing Yes. It. Certain states had outlawed dueling, okay, and others had level. not. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they dueled in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And it was illegal in New Jersey? And New York. Mm-hmm. Go to Connecticut. What are you doing? <laughs> Everything they do You're so makes right. me so This mad. is like, just like, smoke. go smoke weed in Colorado. Just like, why are you? Yeah. Also. <laughs> like that too. Um, he was obviously later, the he was acquitted. Uh, he was still the vice president at this time. Aaron Burr fled New York and spent time with his young grandson and his daughter in South Carolina. And around this time, he allegedly was planning to build his own army and seize land in the Southwest. Well, he wanted relax. to. There was. It was alleged that he was trying to create like his own, basically, like empire in the South. And Theodosia even wrote letters about how she was looking forward to going west to this like new settlement that her father was trying to create. Um, but Jefferson caught wind of it, and so around this time, uh, in 1807, Aaron Burr was arrested for treason. Good. And I wrote, because he was, like, doing some shady shit. <laughs> that is shady shit. But we don't know the extent to which that's true. It could have been rumor, and it could have been just because Jefferson had soured on him after the duel with Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. Um, it was no secret that he was not planning on bringing Aaron Burr on for a second term as vice president, and so this could have been an, an easy out. Um, Couldn't he have just been like, I don't want to bring you on for a second term? No. That's not how it works. You saw Hamilton. Uh, so... I don't even know the <laughs> Hamilton of which you speak. <laughs> so Aaron Burr fled to Europe. During this time, Theodosia was acting as an agent for him in the U.S., raising money to send to him, transmitting messages, and even coordinating with higher-ups for to ensure a smooth return from Europe in July of 1812. However, in June of 1812, Theodosia's son, Aaron, died of malaria, age no. 10. The grief took a great toll on her already ailing health, and she postponed her trip to New York to see her father until December of 1812. 
How old is she now? 29. Got it. She wrote, there is no more joy for me. The world is blank. I have lost my boy. After the War of 1812 broke out, Theodosia's husband was sworn into the governorship of South Carolina on December 10th, 1812, and because he was head of the state militia, he couldn't accompany her to New York. So Burr sent Timothy Green, an old doctor friend of the family, to ensure her safe journey from South Carolina to New York to visit Aaron Burr, her father. Am I right in not trusting this Timothy Green? Uh, not necessarily. Okay, maybe it's because I don't trust men in general. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) On December 31st, 1812, at the port of Georgetown, South Carolina, Theodosia and Dr. Green boarded a schooner called the Patriot, which set sail for New York. It was never seen again. (gasps) The whole ship? Uh I thought it was going to be like... Timothy Green picked her up and then arrived in New York and was like, I don't know what happened. And then he murdered her. Bullshit. Oh, my God. Oh, this is this is the best thing. That's in three weeks. I have not yet had one line from her. Joseph wrote to Aaron. My mind is tortured. After 30 days, my wife is either captured or lost. By February 24th, he had given up all hope. My boy and my wife gone both. This then is the end of all the hopes we had formed. He wrote to his father-in-law. You may well observe that you feel severed from the human race. She was the last thing that bound us to the species. Joseph oh. Alston died in 1816, completely overcome by grief. I really like, though, that he was writing to his father-in-law mm-hmm. and that he said, us. Mm-hmm. I want to have that kind of relationship with my in-laws. What in-laws? <laughs> you have to get in-laws first. In the future. In the future. After you become calm. Or dying When I'm chill in 2020, (laughs) y'all better watch out. Oh, we have to give a shout out to my mom. Oh, yeah, Susan. Hi, Susan. Thanks for listening. Hi, Susan. We appreciate you listening. And I guess now I should also shout out my mom. Hi, princess. You're a queen. Yeah. Susan just started listening. Ooh, Susan. Welcome. Susan started listening on, I think, Elisa Lamb. We'll see if she continues to listen. My mom has not yet listened to the recent episodes, so my Mm. mom is also up for scrutiny. We'll see if she gets this far. I think, I feel like my mom is going to listen to it and be, think it's too creepy and just be like, it's icky. Elisa Lamb? Any of it. Because this one is not as creepy as Elisa. Elisa Lamb was creepy even for me. So if that's true, I don't like begrudge her that. But I don't think she's a fan of like true crime or murder. My mom isn't either, but I think my mom likes the historical stories and like the alien stories. So, but we'll see. This is a lighthearted one, mom, and you love Hamilton. So, oh, you love Hamilton. She yeah. Loves Hamilton. So she will like this one. Um, I'm gonna text her. <laughs> so <laughs> you should text her since your grandma's not responding, according to our last episode. <laughs> um, Real quick, also shout out to my dad for organizing a secret Santa between our cousins and then <laughs> sending us the entire list, so we all know. Copy pasting the uh, <laughs> secret Santa everyone. accidentally. <laughs> Listen, that sounds like something I would do. My parents are being, like, real funny this season. I'm super into it. My mom got mad at me for suggesting that we make vegan mashed potatoes for Thanksgiving, so here we go. Why did you suggest that? Well, I said, I sent an email to the whole family that was like, does anyone have dietary restrictions? Because I have dietary restrictions. So if anyone wants, like, mashed potatoes without, like, butter in it, then let me know. And my mom was like, you didn't mean to say mashed potatoes without butter, did you? (laughs) And I was like... (laughs) No, I know. I get it. It was just 
I was like, I was just trying to be nice. I understand that butter is a very important component in mashed potatoes. <laughs> I was offering to make one with like veggie stock or something in case someone doesn't eat butter. And she was like, yeah, but that's not, no one does that in our family. <laughs> and I was like, okay, then I won't make them. Okay, princess. So. Anyway, love you all. So, um, the schooner that they boarded was called the Patriot. The Patriot, which was famously fast, was built originally as a pilot boat, which served as a privateer during the war. A pilot boat is a very small boat. I was going to ask. I know. <laughs> a very small boat. I was having Eileen Moore flashbacks about, like, <laughs> sun-wise. Um, a pilot boat is a very small boat that's super quick that they use to um, transport pilots from the shore to the boats they're going to be piloting. So, like, when one has to, like, go oh. back to shore and then they have to bring a new pilot in, in war. So it's like if you had to transport... Jack Sparrow to his boat and back. Oh, no. I was going to say if you had to transport giraffes, you would call it a giraffe boat. Correct. We'll just go with that. So <laughs> it was originally built as what is effectively a giraffe boat. Um, <laughs> and it served as a privateer during the war. And I've heard the word privateer a lot, but I didn't know what it meant. Do you know what it means? No, I, I just learned to know. So a privateer is... A privately owned boat that then that is then outfitted with like guns and stuff that can then legally be used in war. It gets all the same rights as any of the warships, but it's piloted mm-hmm. by a private citizen. No, it's just constructed or built or owned by a private citizen, and, and then, then like, like the war effort commissions it. Yeah, Got they're it. like it's the Revolutionary War. We don't have a lot of time to like construct a like a an anybody armada. Got any schooners. Does anybody have a boat we can just use real quick for the war? Yeah, right. You're probably not going to get it back, right? <laughs> but they did, luckily. But yeah, that's essentially okay. Um, the Patriot, which was famously fast, originally built as a pilot boat, served as a privateer during the Revolutionary War. In December, so right before Theodosia went on this journey, mm-hmm. it had been refitted. Its guns dismounted and stored below deck. Its name was painted over, and any indication of recent activity was entirely erased. So they were like, this is a private boat. Mm-hmm. But they kept they put its guns below deck. Why would you do that? The schooner's captain, William Overstocks... Overstock.com is a <laughs> online-only <laughs> furniture company. Uh, William Overstocks desired to make a rapid run to New York with his cargo. It's... It's likely that the ship was laden with the proceeds from its privateering raids, which made it may have made it vulnerable to pirates, which makes it a little sketch. Yeah, I'm I'm curious if it was like protocol to just take a bunch of wartime guns and stick just up, put them under. Yeah, why wouldn't deck? you take them and put them back in like? I agree with you, and I don't know the answer. But what happened was that they did that. <laughs> um, <laughs> What happened was they did the they dumb did, thing. They did that. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, the captain really wanted to, like, make a quick trip to New York. And so the doctor that had been sent down to meet Theodosia was also tasked with, like, arranging this the boat situation. Like, he was tasked with getting them tickets to wherever or arranging, like, a quick trip. So he hired the boat and its captain, and they brought with them a French maid and a skeleton crew... <laughs> And they just fucking set sail for New York Sorry, real quick. Is Halloween? Yes. <laughs> Here are the theories. One possibility is simply bad weather. Uh, we know 
from records from other longboats that there were fierce storms on the Outer Banks January 2nd and 3rd in 1812, which mm-hmm. caused damage to ships nearby the Patriots' planned route. Do we know how long it takes to, it would have taken the Patriot to sail to New York? Um, I'm sure I could find out by just Googling it, but, like, a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But, like, they would have been around this area at this time when there were some really bad storms. On what day... I'm going to do some math. Mm-hmm. On what day did... Uh, her husband write to Aaron Burr that he hadn't heard from her, and how long did he say it had been? My mind is tortured after 30 days. Oh, so he waited a while. Never mind. Well, the problem is also that back in the day, you had to take letters by horseback. So it didn't really make sense. Like, he wouldn't have heard from her until, like, day 20. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Are if you the- setting up the theory that... He killed her. No. Oh, okay. there's, that's not a theory. <laughs> she definitely boarded the yes. boat. Yes. Okay. The, the issue is that it letters traveled by horseback, so you wouldn't expect to get a letter that said she arrived safely. Until, like, for, like, probably 15 days. Mm-hmm. So then he waited, and then in by 30 days. Okay. So one possibility is bad weather. The second theory is pirates. Mm-hmm. So there were men called bankers. Because they hung out on the banks. And they lured ships... <laughs> <laughs> they weren't, like, real bankers. I was like, yeah, we have those. No, no, no. <laughs> they are pirates. Um, and what they would do is they would lure ships close to shore by tying lanterns around tree trunks to make it look like boats were moored in, like, a safe place to moor a boat. Pirate sirens. Mm-hmm. Pirens. Pirens. Uh, and, and then when unsuspecting ships would, like pull over, basically, along the coast. They would sneak aboard the unsuspecting vessels, steal all their stuff, kill their crews, and sometimes just straight up sink the boats if they didn't steal them. That's brilliant. I know. Good job, pirates. Um, then, in 1820, an article was published in the New York Advertiser, which contained the thing you've been asking for since we started this series, a deathbed confession. <gasps> no! Mm-hmm. No! It's like Kayla always says, always leave a deathbed confession. Here's why this is so great. I was expecting to just never get one because everything we tell is unsolved. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't have deathbed confessions. So far, what you have given me is a Hamilton-related mystery about Theodosia with a deathbed confession. And pirates. And pirates. <laughs> yeah. God damn. That's surreal. why I was like, this is the best mystery ever. I'm so glad you're my best friend. Thanks. Me too. Aw. And I'm yours. Oh, Oh, we, uh, this is Mr. T. Mink. I'm Maggie. Okay. I shouldn't have tried. (laughs) so far past. Damn it. Um. I already cried about him. We never even said what this goddamn show is called. Oh. They know. It's in the logo. Do they? Okay. So, Jean Defarge and Robert Johnson. (laughs) I almost was like, Robert Johnson. Oh, I was just laughing at the name Robert Johnson. It's very, yeah. Bob Johnson. That's like the first porn name ever made. Robert Johnson. <laughs> Someone was like, Oh, Long right. John John. Cats? No? No, I just... Ugh. Okay. So Jean Defarge and Robert Johnson, who were executed in 1819 because they were for being, I wrote, for being bloody pirates. <laughs> They claimed that they had been part of the crew of the Patriot, and they claimed to have led a mutiny and killed everyone and scuttled the ship. 
And But certain details that they gave didn't match up. They said that the weather was calm, which we know that it wasn't, because we have logbooks from other ships. Okay. And they claimed to have left from Charleston when we know the Patriot left from Georgetown. So it's not a deathbed confession. In 1833, another deathbed <gasps> confession. <laughs> Don't worry. I structured this mystery specifically so that you would enjoy it. I think I might cry from <laughs> the suspense and going from the disappointment. Your voice is like cracking. <laughs> going from the disappointment of the first. <laughs> I'm about to cry. The first deathbed confession to immediately <laughs> having another deathbed confession. Uh, in 1833, 1833, in 1833, another capital D-E-A-D-H, capital B-E-D, wait, capital deathbed confession, in 1833, I'm so lost, I'm struggling, okay, why would you do this, another newspaper, published a story about a man in Mobile, Alabama, who claimed to have been part of the crew that pirated the Patriot. Stop! Not part of the crew that that departed from Georgetown, but part of the crew of the, the brig that pirated them. So, this is a quote. According to this report, when all the men aboard had been dealt with, only Theodosia remained, proud and brave in facing her doom. As she had not resisted them, the pirates did not wish to harm her, but as it had to be done, they drew lots, and this dying pirate in Mobile had been the one chosen to take her life. Was she the only woman on the ship? Yes. Besides the French maid, we don't know their gender. I assume it could have been a woman, but she was apparently dealt with. Well, maybe she gave them attitude. Maybe. Thinking it a mercy, he set a loose plank half over the edge of the vessel and Theodosia, refusing a blindfold, walked courageously into the sea. That's not mercy. Shoot her in the head. Well, she could have survived that, I think was the thought. Oh. Okay. In 1833. This came from a man who met a dying man, or who knew a dying man in Mobile, Alabama, who had been a pirate. And while he was dying, he confessed to this man who wrote a letter to the paper. How did he know it was Theodosia? Uh, this man uh, incorrectly claimed that her name was Odessa Burr, which actually like credits his story because he probably just misheard her name. Okay, but he said Burr. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Then in 1874, another deathbed confession came I out. I swear to God. What the... Where have they... This I... time <laughs> from Benjamin F. Burdick, whose story claimed that Theodosia... Okay, the, his story was... Very, very similar to the story that was I, published from Mobile, Alabama, Death by Confession. I have a question before you do mm-hmm. this. I'm just curious, like, what you get out of... Fake deathbed Fake con- deathbed? Be- deathbed confessing. Uh, honestly... Even I suggested I might do that later. <laughs> I don't know, but I also think that it's possible that people who were pirates probably ran into schooners off the coast and killed young women and were like, oh shit, was that... You know oh, what I mean? So you think that they weren't lying, they just were maybe misinformed. Maybe just didn't know. Or maybe they just wanted attention and press. We don't know. But they're dead. It was a deathbed confession. Yeah. It seems like either they didn't know they were wrong, or they just, you know, wanted attention. I'm not sure. But they don't get the attention because they're dead. I know, but I think they wanted to be remembered. As a liar? 
No. Or a confused. No, no. I think that they thought that they could get away with the lie. Oh, I see. And be remembered as, like, the pirate that, blah, blah, blah. That seems strange. Okay, um, In this version, uh, Benjamin F. Burdick, his story claimed that Theodosia had attacked the pirate captain with a broken bottle, but had been subdued and kept alive until she died on the ship's subsequent journey to Galveston, and then that she was buried on Galveston Island. Died of what? Sorry? Died of what? Uh, we don't know, but we know that she was, like, in really bad health. Oh, right. Right, right, right. Because she had the uterine prolapse when her kid died and then she... was always in bad health. And then when he died, she was, like, super ill, which is why she waited till December to go visit Aaron Burr. So she, like, attacked someone with a broken bottle and they were like, you can stay alive. And then she... Yeah, in this version. Just was sick. They kept okay. her alive. And then she died on their trip to Galveston and was buried on Galveston Island. In 1886, a Texas veteran with the initials WJJ wrote to the Galveston Daily News... And this is an excerpt from a book called Texas Obscurities, Stories of the Peculiar, Exceptional, and Nefarious by E.R. Bills. His letter claimed that 50 years earlier, he had been present at the deathbed confession of an old, emaciated sailor in Mobile, Alabama, (sighs) who maintained that he was the last survivor of a piratical crew who fell in with the Patriot off the coast of South Carolina. The old sailor said that the Patriot's captain and crew were massacred, Theodosia was blindfolded and forced to walk the plank, finding a watery sepulcher. According to the account, the confessor spoke in admiration for fortitude and did not wish to die without confession and full contrition for the part he had taken in the bloody deed. And he was from Galveston? Mm-hmm. So, there are a lot of stories like this. There's one where she's, like, kept as a sex slave. There's one where she's spared by an infamous pirate until their ship was wrecked by a hurricane. There's one wherein she was found by a Native American chief who took her as a wife until she died, leaving behind only a locket with the name Theodosia inscribed in it. Whoa. Like, there's a lot of folklore around it. Yeah. It's possible that the myths are a mix of truth and myth. Mm-hmm. What we do know is that in 1869... A doctor named William G. Poole was visiting the home of Polly Mancaring in Nags Head, North Carolina, when he was struck by a very expensive-looking oil painting on the wall of her home. She gave the portrait to Dr. Poole, quote, like, as payment, quote, and claimed that when she was young, her first husband had discovered it on a wrecked ship during the War of 1812. Dr. Poole became convinced the portrait was of Theodosia. And reached out to members of her family to see if anyone could verify that it was her. Many people in the family agreed that it could be, but none could say for certain as many of them had never met her. But one of her first cousins insisted that it was her based on the resemblance she bore to her sister. But also a lot of portraits do not look like their subjects. And a lot of them look the same. In the 20th century, the Nags Head portrait was owned by Amber Auchincloss, which I guess is her married name. Um... And since 1980, it's been at Yale University's Lewis Walpole Library. Why is that Yale? We don't know. Hold on. I don't like that. Because Burr went to Princeton. (laughs) Aaron Burr lived another 23 years after her disappearance. He never believed any of the pirate stories. He wrote, quote, She is dead. She perished in the miserable little pilot boat in which she left. Were she alive, all the prisons in the world could not keep her from her father. about this. I know. So, we don't know. Oh my god. There's a high likelihood that their ship was just wrecked in a storm. There's also a possibility that it was taken by pirates and she was just straight up murdered. Yeah. Or that she was kept 
for a while and then died because she was in bad health. We don't know. We don't know what happened to William or to um, the doctor, friend of the family. Thomas Green. Mm-hmm. Dr. Green. That is so fucking insane. Oh my God. That was a fucking roller Isn't that coaster. that crazy? We didn't know that Theodo- that happened to Theodosia. Because, like, when I listen to Hamilton, I'm like, aw. A baby. A baby. <laughs> and now I know that she was, like, an incredibly intelligent woman who was, like, yeah. a feminist and worked as an agent for her dad and, like, raised all this money to get him back to the States safely and did all this shit. And that, like, she just, dis- she literally was lost at sea. Is that insane? I think I'm in shock. You might be. I think I'm in shock that's because some crazy you just shit. presented me with a story that was Hamilton and <laughs> deathbed confessions and pirates. This is why I was so excited for you, like for you to hear it because I was like, "This is everything Kayla loves. It's Hamilton. It's deathbed confessions. It's pirates. It's Revolutionary War murders. It's it's everything I love. Lost at sea. It's yeah. I thought and it was I super love cool. a lost at sea. I thought it was super cool. That was incredible. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. I like am very. I don't know how I'm gonna. Like, You're overwhelmed. <laughs> yes, my brain is like static. Dear Theodosia, what do... we should play that during the break. Say to you, you're on a ship. Don't get on that ship. <laughs> don't go in that lake. <laughs> um, should we do right. a quick break? I really need a break. I feel Great. like I'm gonna lose my mind. We're back. We're back. And I am no longer catatonic. <laughs> you overcame your... I recovered. <laughs> ...strong emotions about Theodosia Burr, Austin. Jesus. Okay. So, I am not going to tell you what my mystery is, because... Love it. A big reveal. Yeah. So. This is like Ed Poe, where you're like, do you want to tell us? And I was like, no. And you're like, copy, I know what you're doing. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Okay. In December 1984... A package with no return address and an Albuquerque postmark arrived in Jamie Shandera's mail in North Hollywood, California. Inside was a roll of 35mm film. When the film was developed, it revealed not photos, but a series of documents (gasps) from the United States government. Uh Uh-oh. The documents purported to be a memo written in 1952 by the director of the CIA advising President Eisenhower of the existence of a group of 12 scientists and military officials who were assembled in 1947 on the orders of (gasps) President Truman to investigate the crash of the Flying Saucer. I know that year, because we went to there. We did go to there. The memo advised the president of the importance of the Majestic 12 group. This is an amazing companion piece to our last episode. I know. How the recovered alien technology could be exploited and how the United States should engage with extraterrestrial life in the future. The memo also suggested that the project should be continued. (laughs) Majestic 12! Majestic 12! Oh, so we're finally doing Majestic 12. So, among the names who appear as original members of the Majestic 12 are Rear Admiral Roscoe Hillencoter, the first director of the CIA, Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Vannevar Bush, who headed the Wartime Office of Scientific Research and Development, and James Forrestal, Secretary of Defense. So, Shandera got this. He called his friend Bill Moore, and he was like, I got some weird shit. Let's develop 
the film together and it revealed that it was the Majestic 12 documents. And they lost their shit, obviously. If you want to hear more about this, you can also uh, go listen to our Gulf Breeze episodes. Yes. If you become a member of our, if you subscribe to our Patreon, we did a lot of really good jokes about the MUFON guys in a van. Yes. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly these guys that we're dealing with. Yeah. So then the two of them received an anonymous tip from sources claiming to represent Air Force intelligence. And they followed the tip. They traveled to Washington, D.C. to search the National Archives for documents referencing MJ-12. While they were searching, they came across a memo written by Hill and Cotter. And this memo reads, quote, The president has decided that the MJ-12 SSP briefing should take place during the already scheduled White House meeting of July 16th, rather than following it as previously intended. More precise arrangements will be explained to you upon arrival. Please alter your your plans accordingly. Your concurrence in the above change of arrangements is assumed. I cannot wait for, like, a hundred years from now when they're diving through, like, the Trump White House archives. (sighs) And the memos are, like, the memos are, like, the president won't leave his room. He's really (laughs) mad. He asked for an Oreo McFlurry. We brought him a chocolate Butterfinger McFlurry. (laughs) Like, I cannot wait for those fucking memos that are like, it's like 1,800 hours. The president will not leave his room until Jeopardy is over. In 1825, the president has been shouting the wrong answers at Alex Trebek for the past 45 minutes. Like, I just can't 1830, wait. the president is mad that Alex Trebek is not answering and <laughs> does not understand how television works. Yeah, this exactly. is an archived episode of Jeopardy from 1991. And it's going to be like, all, and then we'll have the tweets to corroborate. <laughs> oh my God. God, okay. I can't wait. Okay, sorry. Wait. I'm sorry. I'm excited. Aliens, go ahead. Okay, so... They found the memo, which is called... They refer to it as the um, Cutler-Twining memo. Hmm. Because of some, like, people who were involved. And researching this is so confusing. And there are so many, like, branches of, like, alien conspiracy that... My favorite part was today when Kayla texted me. (laughs) I was, like, expecting her to, like, leave her house. And she was like, I just got to the part of the internet that's black background with green font. <laughs> I was like, oh <laughs> Which no. Which means I had another hour to go. Yeah, exactly. I ended up having to copy paste that whole page. It was 15, Just so you could read it? Just so I could read it. Yeah. After like a paragraph, it gave me a headache. Yeah. And then it ended up, I'll tell you about that page because <laughs> I didn't read the header and it ended up funny. Okay, so they found that memo. Then... In 1987, the documents were received anonymously by a British UFO author named Timothy Good. Timothy Good then published the pictures in his book Above Top Secret. And Bill Moore was like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. It's time to go public with this. And at the MUFON conference of that year in June, he told everybody what he had, and everybody lost their mind. We gotta become MUFON members. We're, yeah. I need to get my PhD in paranormal. 
As soon as we start, mo- like, if our if we ever successfully monetize this podcast, I'm putting- if you're listening, please donate money so we can become members of MUFON because <laughs> it costs like a thousand dollars or something to join MUFON. Yeah. Oh God, I want to be a member of MUFON. Yeah. If you're listening and you have any money, please subscribe to our Patreon or just Venmo us. <laughs> Venmo us like twenty dollars each. Yeah. All a hundred of you, and we're That'd done. Be great. I also think that my late in life, like. Cool. two-thirds life crisis yeah. is going to be getting that PhD in paranormal, paranormal studies, studies or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be... I think I'm going to do it when I'm like 75. Great. Do it. So, that was in 1987. In 1988, classic killjoy Philip Class Classic UFO killjoy. Favorite, sent the documents to the FBI. Because he sucks. Yeah. The FBI released this statement. (laughs) Quote, The Office of Special Investigations, U.S. Air Force, advised on November 30, 1988, that the document was fabricated. Copies of that document have been distributed to various parts of the United States. The document is completely bogus. And they use the word bogus bogus in an official FBI document. Like they're fucking traveling in a telephone booth. What are you in the wild stallions? Okay. So then in 1989, five years after seeing the documents and going on a wild national treasure hunt for references in the (gasps) National Archives. National treasure. Yeah. Very national treasure. (laughs) Bill Moore went to the MUFON conference and said that for years, since before he saw the MJ-12 papers, he had been involved in a deal with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, a misinformation deal, in which he worked with a CIA agent named Richard Doty to feed false information to the UFO community. And in return, they gave him a bunch of shit to write in his books. Holy shit. Yeah. Okay, this is baffling for a couple of reasons. But the thing that's striking me right now is in all the conspiracy theory literature that we've ever read, I had never even considered the possibility that any of the, like, so-called kooks of the UFO... You know what I'm saying? Like, I had never thought that any of the people that were, like, the crazy people from the UFO like world mm-hmm. had been intentionally misinforming the UFO community at the behest of our government. That's fucking so good. Isn't that crazy? So in that announcement, he told, like, the most infamous disinformation story in the UFO community, which is the case of Paul Benowitz. Okay, so Paul Benowitz worked as a contractor at the Kitland Air Force Base in New Mexico. And he became obsessed with eavesdropping on the Air Force and through that became convinced that there were aliens living inside Archuleta Mesa near Dulce, New Mexico. <gasps> Dulce base. Dulce mm-hmm. base. Um, okay. So he took his small private plane and flew it around the area and he took photographs of things that he thought were alien. And then he sent them to the Air Force because he thought it was his civic duty. Uh, in 1985, he photographed some, like, debris crash site, and he sent it to Bill Moore, who then 
sent it to the Air Force. Heavy air quotes. Uh Uh-huh. So the plane that he took a picture of was allegedly an F-117A that was operating out of Holloman, um, but it was still a secret that needed to be covered up. What did I say last episode? A cover-up is a cover-up is a cover-up mm-hmm. to the UFO And community. this is all according to Bill Moore. Mm-hmm. So through Moore, the Air Force confirmed Benowitz's suspicions, and then, as Moore reports, they scattered more debris even going so far as to build things to throw around the area to look extraterrestrial to fuel his paranoia, and then fed him stories about the underground bunker through Moore. Bill Morris said that part of his job in this specific case was to drive Benowitz into a full psychological breakdown. Can we really quickly, just like for our listeners, like explain what's happening right now? Bill Moore testified... No. Well, he said at a MUFON conference. Yeah. Which is he not necessarily t- t- testif- <laughs> but like testified, like testified. Yeah. Like he testified that he was part of the cover up, but like his specific job was to tell. Yes. Okay. So I'll recap. So Bill Moore, who was the second person to ever see the MJ 12 documents, mm-hmm. came forward and said his job was to work with a CIA agent named Richard Doty to disseminate false information into the UFO community. Yes. To make them feel like they were crazy. To make them feel like they were crazy or to distract them from what was really going on. Okay. Copy. Just wanted to clarify that. Yes. So part of this one was to drive Benowitz to a full psychological breakdown because he was, like, too close to their, quote, military testing. Right, like, his job was to make Benowitz feel like he was a crazy person. Yeah, his job was to confirm Benowitz's theories about aliens to the point where he became so paranoid about an alien invasion that he went insane. And he, quote-unquote, like, testified this information to MUFON. He told this to MUFON. Okay. And he succeeded. Mm -hmm. And Benowitz was locked away for... I don't know how long, but he went to a mental institution because he, his, like, paranoid delusions got so crazy that he became, uh, like, non-functional. Now I kind of buy it. (laughs) And then, when he got out, he lived the rest of his life as a recluse. I buy it now. Listen, I buy it too. Now I buy it all. (laughs) Another person that was affected by this directly is a woman named Linda Howe, who's a filmmaker. And she was working on a documentary for HBO called Strange Harvest. And she, like, contacted Richard Doty and was like, hey... Or she was contacted by Richard Doty and he was like, hey, I have... Like, let's talk for your documentary. Uh She went to his office at Kirtland in April 1983 and he showed her something that was called, quote briefing paper for the president of the United States, which is a different title than the Eisenhower document. Mm -hmm. She says that he confirmed the existence of MJ-12, and she was allowed to look through the briefing paper, was not allowed to take notes. Um, Part of the document was a catalog of crash UFO cases, including one near Aztec, New Mexico. So, here's the thing about the Linda Howe. I really want a soundbite for this podcast when we talk about science versus conspiracy, where it's, like, just one of our, vo- our voices being like, SCIENCE! 
Conspiracy. I'm sampling that. Great. It's too late. So the thing about Linda Howe's meeting is that the the what she was shown was not the same as the Eisenhower document, right. obviously. And the Eisenhower document did not have the Aztec crash in it. Yeah. That was the Majestic 12 document, and it was about Roswell. Yeah. It was Roswell and one other in, um, I can't remember where, but not Aztec. Was it, was it the Battle crashes. of Los Angeles? No. Okay. It was somewhere in New Mexico. Okay. But it was not Aztec. Okay. So we were like, question mark? Is it sloppy workmanship? Like, what's right. happening? Right. Um, so that's like the amount, that's the information we have on the MJ-12 papers. I have theories for you. That's, or I have skepticism for you. Conspiracy. Science. (laughs) It's, so this section originally was just called what the skeptics say, and then it turned into (laughs) What the skeptics say versus what Stanton Friedman says. Stanton Friedman. Welcome back, Stanton. Welcome back to our podcast. I found an article online that was like, here are all of the main, like, skeptics theories on these documents. And then I found an article on Stanton Friedman's website that literally addresses, like, five out of six of them directly. So this is called... What a hero. Stanton Friedman says. (laughs) (laughs) There are uh, two that he doesn't address, which I will tell you now. So the first one is the date format on the MJ-12 papers. So I brought that up in the previous episode. What'd you say? So, uh, fellow class, you know, like the canonical killjoy of the UFO community was like, the date sequence is wrong. Like, the military does the date sequence different than Bill Moore did it, and Bill Moore had other examples... Like, there are other examples of Bill Moore's work where it's done in that format, and the military doesn't do it that way. Correct. So, yeah. The... It was... It's like date, month... Or, sorry. Month, date, year. As opposed to... Yes. So the MJ-12 documents are day, month, year, and the military does month, day, year. Yes. Correct. Um... It's a it's a plebeian civilian way of doing the date because in yeah. America we're one of the few countries that does the month before the date. Yes, and military and other countries do date month year. Yeah, and Stan Freeman in this one article I read does not address that. Okay, so skepticism number one: dates. Date. That's skepticism number one about my life too. True. Was it a date? <laughs> Was it a date? <laughs> Was it just drinks? Are we just friends? Are we hanging out? Are we hanging out? Are we dating? Are we seeing each other? I don't need more friends. Let me tell you. (laughs) Here's, like, a sidebar for you. Recently, I've been told a lot, like, I don't see this going anywhere, but we can be friends. And can I just say... Bitch, I don't need more friends. I don't need more friends. I have six friends, and they're my favorite people on this planet. One of them does a podcast about aliens with me. I don't need you for that. What makes them think that if you're not getting sex from them, that you would want to be their friend? I don't want to. I don't want to be your friend. I don't like you that much. I have enough friends. Friends are oftentimes a burden, which is why I've limited myself to the few friends that I have because they're oh, not yeah. a burden to me. 
I don't need more fucking friends that I have to show up to birthdays for. Also, if I'm too intense for you on a dating level, I'm going to be way way worse as a friend. friend. Anyway, men are stupid. So, the second skepticism. Are men stupid? Ancient mystery theorists say yes. (laughs) We say hard yes. Hard yes. Fuck off. Fuck off. So the second skepticism point that Stan Friedman doesn't have an answer for that I am aware of from reading one article is the code word M-A-J-I-C. So the... Magic, but different. But different. So the two things that I found are basically like... One just said... Quote, this appears to be the code name for the project. However, this would constitute a major violation of the code naming scheme used by the military for well over a decade. Also, from what I understand, in World War II, there was a code name Magic with a J with a G in mm-hmm. a, for some other project related right. to Japanese intelligence. Right. So those are the two that Stanton Friedman has no answer for. Okay. Here are the ones he does have an answer for. Yes. One of the things that make people think that the Majestic 12 documents are not real is that Hill and Cotter is referred to as Admiral Hill and Cotter in the document, but his true rank was Rear Admiral. Mm, interesting. Um, people argue that in casual speech or among civilians, this is like a common error, but the military... Or someone working for the military, someone high up enough to write such a top secret document would, would know never the difference. Make this yeah, error. the same thing as the the date, where it's like that's yeah. a civilian way to do the date. Yeah. Stanton Friedman says, "Uh oh, Hill and Cotter was not a full admiral, but a rear admiral. However, in September 1947, Montague, who was listed as a general, was only a brigadier general." And Twining and Vandenberg, who were also listed as generals, were only lieutenant generals. In short, the writer of the briefing was consistent in using generic ranks. I see. Mm -hmm. So the writer of the briefing was just referring to them as, like, the main part of their title as opposed to specifying. Generic ranks across the board. All right. I almost buy that. Me too. Because I was thinking, like, you know, if I was working on, like, production and I was like, oh... The producer, as opposed to like the co-producer, or the executive producer, or the whatever. Like maybe I would write something like that. Like, yeah. Well, if it was within the production crew, yeah, you wouldn't be like line producer Maggie Stabile. You'd right. be like produce like Maggie Stabile, produ- you know, the producer. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way, but that's exactly how I would. Yeah, if I was trying to like notate something. I yeah. wouldn't necessarily specify. I wouldn't specify. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. The second one is word usage. There were two terms in the document that were used that were not in use during the 50s. Uh, the word media to refer to the press uh-huh. did not appear until the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Same as the word impacted, apparently. Okay. Stanton Friedman says... He sent, <laughs> this is a very Stanton Friedman response. I'm going to read it to you 
verbatim, none of the vocal critics even discussed the findings of world-class linguistics expert Dr. Roger Westcott. At the suggestion of attorney Bob Bletchman... How very fucking (laughs) dare they. I know. At the suggestion of attorney Bob Bletchman, I had obtained 27 samples of Helen Cotter's various writings from the Truman Library. Dr. Westcott reviewed these and the memo and stated in April 7th, 1988, quote, In my opinion, there is no compelling reason to regard any of these communications as fraudulent or to believe that any of them were written by anyone other than Helen Cotter himself. That's Friedman's retort. Sure. He sent them to a linguist, and the linguist was like, it makes sense. (sighs) Okay. Yeah, that one made me sigh a little bit. Okay. So, uh, the third one is the security... Can I pause for a second? Yeah. I just think that, like, if, like... You know, like, 50 years from now, someone was analyzing something from this time where someone, like, referred to the... Like, we refer to them as the media. Mm -hmm. Because we're referring to, like, newspapers, TV, Twitter. Like, it's a wide scope. We don't refer to them as, like, the newscasters. You know, Mm -hmm. I just think, like, if 100 years from now someone referred to the... Like, if everyone referred to the media as, like, the interneteers. <laughs> and then, like, someone, like, falsified a document from now using that phrase. It would be like, yeah, no one fucking ever said that ever until Maggie invented it on the podcast that it became the most famous podcast in the country. Like, yeah. why? Okay. But, yeah. Go ahead. No, I agree. This one, I did not buy. I don't buy It's that. like the ABBA and Mozart thing. I don't buy it. Yeah. Okay. And then the third one is... People have a really big problem with the fact that the memo was stamped, quote, top secret restricted. Like, that was its security... Designation. Designation. People claim that there was no such classification in 1954, and it wasn't used until the Nixon era. There is, like, a... Stanton Friedman has, like, a first person account of why that's not true but I will say that I don't think that makes any sense because the Nixon era is absolutely a great time for people to start releasing top secret restricted information as opposed to top secret you know because Mm -hmm. that's like the first time in our history where like top secret restricted levels of information became pertinent to the American public yeah I will argue with you that um Maybe that didn't quote unquote un- exist to the public and historians until that time doesn't mean it didn't exist. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Um, so Stanton Friedman's argument is not that. Oh, buddy. <laughs> He's not presenting. Ours makes sense. Ours makes complete sense. He said, quote, the General Accounting Office, in its pursuit in many archives for Roswell related material, made the following statement on page 80 of their 400-plus page report on their Roswell investigation, which is a very standard Friedman thing to quote. Yeah, instead of saying, oh, you just didn't know about that, but it always existed, he was like, no, I have proof that... 
But he does. In this report, it says, quote, December 7th, 1994, Miss LJ and 94? I... 94? Listen. 94 is when they were looking for Roswell information. Miss LJ and I reviewed records pertaining to the Air Force's atomic energy and certain mission and weapons requirements. These were classified up to and including top secret. The period covered by these records was from 1948 to 1956. There was no no mention of the Roswell incident. No information pertaining to the assignment was obtained. In several instances, we noted the classification top secret restricted used on several documents. This is mentioned because in past references to the classification Majestic 12, we were told that it was not used during this period. So according to Stanton Friedman, people who were looking for things about Roswell went into the archives and found other top secret restricted documents from that time. Right. So out of all that, all that Majestic 12 stuff, my question is... (laughs) Is Richard Doty being silenced by the government for releasing secret documents via Bill Moore into the UFO community? Is the disinformation campaign just a cover-up so that we don't know the capital A actual capital T truth? (laughs) We really don't know. Because as I was doing this research, I was like, oh, obviously it's disinformation. And then as I started thinking about it... Qui bono. The government bonos. We bonos. <laughs> well, we bonos no matter what. We bono. The government bonos either way. Shit. But here's my thing about this, is that the government claims that they were spreading disinformation from the U- into the UFO community because they were like, well, Russians aren't going to listen to like chatter about UFO. They want to hear about planes. But here's oh, my question. Oh, shit. Are they going to listen to the UFO people at all? I didn't... No, but that, that actually makes sense. Well, that's... Ex- that, yeah, that's what they were doing. Is they were yeah, like, if the U.S. thinks it's If the aliens, U.S. says it's aliens, Russia's to... going to be like, that's bullshit. But you realize the implications of that because we literally had a, like, a space race with them. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. we got to talk about this more. We're going to have to do, like, a space race episode. We're going to have to do a space race episode. I almost did the moon landing today, too. I'm honestly so intrigued by this. We're going to have to keep investigating. We are. Until the NSA shuts us down. Yeah, my computer was going really slow today. (laughs) We're getting really close. We're getting close. I just hope they pay us at the end. Who? I don't know. They. Oh, our listeners? (laughs) Contribute to our Patreon if you want to fight... The dissemination <laughs> of misinformation, and you want to know what really happened with yeah. If you want to know the moon landing, the truth, the cosmonauts, of the, the aliens, <laughs> and that it's not just an F one seventeen A. Lord. All right. Well, follow us uh, on Instagram at Mystery Team Inc. On Twitter at Mystery Team Inc. One. Email us at Mystery Team Incorporated at Gmail. And I'm Maggie. I'm Kayla. This is Mystery Team Inc. We're solving mysteries, except we're not. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Thank you. Go find the truth. I hope. But we don't know. And stay in your lane.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.